Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. So this will be the third message in Luke. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. It says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of the father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, uh, to their kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, uh, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. So if we start out things maybe with a little game of word association, if I were to say Nashville to you, I would imagine, uh, if you haven't been under a rock, you would probably say country music or music or maybe associate it with the, the downtown scene in Nashville. And if I were to say Italy or Italia to you, you would probably think pasta or pizza or maybe the Colosseum or the Vatican or something kind of in that realm. There'd be some sort of thing that would pop into your mind. And if I said Kansas City, especially today, you'd say... Okay, so full disclosure, this means I know that you can talk and things like... If you can say Chiefs, you can say, like, I'm going to scrap this sermon and this is actually a disciplinary week. Um... That was the most participation ever. If I say Chiefs, or if I say KC, you're going to say Chiefs. But if I were to say Blackwater, Missouri, you probably like, bro, nothing. I don't know. Uh, where is that, someone just said. Actually, that's, that's right. There, there's like five streets there. And if you were to pull up Google Maps, uh, go ahead and put that picture up as, if it works. If you were to pull up Google Maps, you know how Google Maps gives you markers for attractions. Blackwater has four attractions. One of them is the water tower with the dumpster out front. So if you only get four attractions and one is a water tower with a dumpster, like it's not the coolest place to be in the world. Uh, You you probably don't know where Blackwater is. It is not an attraction. It's a no-name place in the middle of nowhere. People don't go there. They just kind of pass through this type of place. Well, as the text starts out and the original audience hears Nazareth, that's kind of the same vibe that they would get. Like, Nazareth? Like, what do you, why are you bringing this place up? Nothing happens there. Why are we focusing on Nazareth? Because Nazareth was actually considered a location between two locations. You had two different port cities, the port of Tyre and the port of Sidon, and it was kind of a a middle ground in between those. So you'd kind of pass through it as you went to Nazareth. 
the other. You never actually went there on purpose. It is the place in our context. It's the place that you get gas and get a soda on your way to someplace cool because that's not the cool place. It's just the place in between there. And we know that Nazareth would have been a pretty unremarkable, small, a little bit lame place. In Nazareth, we even hear in the historical writings, it was so small it had one water well. One for the people. If you got one water well, you don't have a lot of people. And we also know that Nazareth was kind of overrun by Gentiles and Roman soldiers, meaning not only was it tiny, not only was it a a no-name place, it was also a little bit shady and it was a little bit rough because of all of those Roman soldiers who'd made their way in. That's why Nathaniel says later in the New Testament about Nazareth, can anything good come out of that place? And we kind of think of that as cute. It's like, oh, he's saying it's small. He's like, no, 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 that's like a dirty, small, shady, rough space. Like nothing good comes from there. It's corrupt. You don't go there for any reason. There's, there's really nothing good that can come out of that place. And yet Luke zooms in to focus on that place immediately as the text starts. That's what we kind of need to see in the beginning. I'll back up maybe a second after contextually giving us the idea of what Nazareth is. We've gotten not very far in the book of Luke so far. We saw the introduction that Luke was writing a detailed account. I'm gonna gather things like an investigative reporter to give a detailed account of what Jesus accomplished and what he filled for this reason. I'm giving all these details and names and locations and context and elements so that believers may have confidence in what Jesus has fulfilled. I don't want you to be kind of wondering if all of this is true. I'm going to gather all of it so you can have a lot of faith in what Christ has accomplished. Then last week's text zooms in into what is called the forerunner to Christ, the one who comes before, the announcer, the preparer. This is when it kind of tells us that the birth of John the Baptist is going to be coming. An angel came to this old guy named Zachariah who's serving in the temple, surprised the daylights out of him and says, hey, Zachariah, you're going to have a boy and this boy is going to prepare the people for the Lord. And this is not only an answer to Zachariah's prayer and Elizabeth's prayer, in an instant when they hear this word of a preparer for the people, for the Lord, they realize all of a sudden 400 years of silence had been broken. There was 400 years before in Malachi, there's this word, a redeemer, a fixer, a a savior, a king is going to come. Then 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden when this, hey, there's going to be one that prepares the way for this one. All of a sudden this promise of God begins to churn again in the hearts of the people when he says, hey, there's going to be a boy who comes. And he's going to prepare everyone for the redeemer. He's not the redeemer. He's not the fixer. But he's going to get you ready for the one. Then the story zooms out. It fast forward six months and it zooms back into that town, Nazareth, a small, little, kind of nowhere, no town type of place. And it seems like the angel Gabriel shows up to pull off uh, yet another birth announcement. It's this kind of new trick that he wants to do. Hey, you're going to have a boy. And there's a couple points that we should maybe process to understand this text well. First, Luke writes the account of John in a certain way and the account of Jesus right after in a certain way to kind of compare and contrast John and Jesus for us. 
He wants to make sure that we understand who is greater. So the Bible likes to write in this form called a lesser to greater form. So he's going to write in a way that John's stuff was cool, but it's lesser. Jesus's was greater. I need you to understand who is great. Yes, they were both kind of miracle babies. They were unexpected. They were both foretold of by an angel. They're both prophesied of in the Old Testament. They're both going to do some awesome things. But the birth of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the fulfillment of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus is infinitely greater than anything that John the Baptist can can offer to you. And that confusion of who is greater, it, it may be a little bit weird to us. Maybe we don't struggle with that. But in the gospel accounts, we see the specific people in the early church, they really did. Jesus came to the disciples and Peter at one point and he said, okay, I've got a question for you. Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And they kind of curiously respond, well, a lot of people think you're John the Baptist. Like, okay, but who do you say that I am? It's showing that there is a confusion. And then scattered through the New Testament as well, we see these references to, well, John the Baptist's disciples, they prayed this way or they did this or they focused on this. But Jesus's, they do this and people were trying to decide, well, who should we follow? From the perception of other people, there was almost a jockeying for position of who's better and, and who is more powerful. Luke wants to clarify John the Baptist was great. He was wonderful. He was faithful to his calling, even to the point of death. And he played a pivotal role in getting the people ready for Jesus, but he wasn't Jesus. And we shouldn't be confused with him. John was always the forerunner, never the savior. But the savior is coming, and that is good news. And the second detail that we should keep in mind is maybe a framework for how to view Mary in the text. There are a lot of situations over the course of history where people have kind of struggled with what do we do with Mary? And the two major problems that we've seen is people have either over-elevated or completely rejected her and who she is. Some people make too much out of her and they give her attributes of the divine God that the Bible never says that she has. And they even begin to pray to her and they go to her as a means of grace. The text says Mary full of grace. They think that she can impart grace. Some people have gone as far as to call Mary a a co-redeemer, as if she is a a partner with Jesus in the the, the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of what has been broken through our sin. And some have even attributed the title of Mary of sinless and perfect, which she's not. We see later in the New Testament that Mary was headed to the temple one day to give a sacrifice. Sacrifices are given for one reason— to atone for sin. She's giving a sacrifice for sin. She had committed a sin and she's needing to to, to deal with that sin. So she was not sinless. I don't point those things out to demean her. We just need to be careful of what we do with the person of Mary. Other people go too far the other way and they almost flippantly disrespect her and, and treat her poorly in a way that the text absolutely does not warrant at all. Hopefully we'll kind of walk away with this text understanding there is a way to treat Mary. The framework that I hope that we can walk away with is is seeing that Mary is a wonderful example to us of faith, but she is not an object of faith for us. Meaning the, the way that she lived and how she walked out her faith, it should be aspired to. It should be imitated. It is beautiful and it is good, but she should not be worshiped prayed to or place your faith in her because that is Jesus and Jesus alone's territory. That's the tension. The church has wrestled with it for many, many, many years. We just kind of want to walk out in a healthy place. So the the lesser to greater of John and Jesus and how to treat Mary and how to place that in the grand narrative of redemption is kind of what we're looking at 
today. So as we jump into the text, there is a maybe kind of straightening that we need to do. In the text about the incarnation, I will, I will steal the, the words of the, the theologian Kent Hughes. We must accept the essential spiritual fact of the incarnation and the gospel that the Lord comes to needy people. We need to understand that as we roll into this. Those who realize that they, uh, without him, cannot make it. That's, that's, that's who the incarnation is for. Those who acknowledge that they have a spiritual weakness or a lack or a need, this means that the incarnation and salvation and the resurrection and the gospel as a whole are not for the proud or the self-sufficient or the ones who can handle their business on their own. It's the ones who have need. And this maybe has to track with our minds with the words of Jesus himself when he said, hey, I came for the lost. The, the ones who, who, they don't know how to get home. They don't, they don't know how to fix things. I came for the sick. I came for the, the broken. I came for the sinner. Those words uh, help us understand why this man was born to a nobody in the middle of nowhere as well. And when we understand these words, man, I have a need, and, and without him, I was in trouble. This is what lets our soul begin to worship and see that God taking on flesh is really good news. It'll stir worship in our hearts we slow down and take a breath and just kind of go, hey, that's, that's, that's me. I'm one who had a need. I'm, I'm one who was lost. I'm among the spiritually needy. I was sick in my sin. I was without hope. This isn't maybe a call to self-deprecation or self-hatred, just a call to prepare your heart. Hey, man, I had a need. And and I have a good father who met that need through the person and work of Jesus. I couldn't have done it on my own. So he sent the rescuer and redeemer in. Man, that's a good father. And man, that's a good king to have come and meet my, my need. So the text starts with Gabriel being sent by God. This shows that it's God's work and it's God's plan. And Gabriel bypasses Tyre and Sidon and Judea and Samaria to go to Nazareth. Martin Luther wrote, we might have expected the angel to go to Jerusalem and pick out Caiaphas's daughter. She was beautiful. She was rich. She was clad with gold. She had kind of an army of maids and servants. She was kind of the who's who. She was a, a big hitter in culture, high and mighty person. We might have expected, hey, maybe that would be a good person to kind of platform the, the Savior, and yet God preferred a lowly maid from a nothing town. Why? We could talk about the prophecy side of it, but I think it's maybe helpful to understand maybe just a, a more heartfelt understanding of this. Why would the Savior not come from that type of place? Why uh, would he come from a small town? I think it has to do with approachability and power. If the Savior came from a rich, powerful, famous, influential type of family, how could lowly or humble or broken down or lost people ever feel like they have an inroad to, to come and find salvation? How could they ever think they have access to a Savior if he's kind of bigger than life and famous and he comes from this massive town? He would be unapproachable, impossible to come to in your brokenness. Imagine being broken and seeing this way to salvation and think, man, I'm just too broken ever to come to that, 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 that influential, powerful person. It would seem impossible if Jesus came from that type of place, but he didn't. So Gabriel sent to a virgin named Mary who was betrothed or engaged to Joseph. For context, Mary was believed to have been probably 12 to 14 years of old at this time. She wasn't in her 20s. 
She was nowhere near 18 years old. She would have been uh, a kind of preteen to teen from a tiny, no-name town. She would have been illiterate, uneducated, untraveled, and she has an angel come to meet her. You have to process that. There's, there's no internet. There's no Marvel movies or television or printing press. There's no cartoons to draw from. There's no sci-fi movies or special effects that she kind of has in her back in her mind to, to have a paradigm. She has none of that. And then all of a sudden, with none of that paradigm in her mind, an angel comes out and begins to speak to her. This is the same angel that scared the daylights out of Zechariah and then made him mute for at least nine months afterwards. This is the angel that comes to her. And the angel says these words, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The word greeting can also mean rejoice. So hey, rejoice, Mary, you've been favored by God. And Mary rejoiced, the Lord is with you. The, the, the presence of God is with you. This is a dual declaration. Well, well why would she be favored? Or, or what favor is, her coming, uh, is, is coming her way? And how is she to, to, to believe that the presence of God is, is kind of with her? Well, remember her context in the middle of a nowhere town, uneducated, with little means and little excitement. Her life probably seemed fairly uneventful and underwhelming at this time. The angel says you are favored, though prior to that day, I I doubt she really thought of her life as one to be favored or very awesome. It probably felt pretty plain. Now, why would Gabriel be telling her she's favored beyond that? Well, the birth of Jesus, she's about to find out more about. It is a favor and a blessing that no other person has to be in her position. She will snuggle and hold close the Savior to her bosom. She will breastfeed Christ. She will comfort him when he snuggles. She'll put him to sleep and go get him when he begins to cry. She'll change his garments, see his first step, see his first joke if he's funny. She gets to see all of these things. And further, when you look at the face of Mary, you would have seen shadows uh, of Jesus in her. You would see parts of Christ when, or parts of Mary when you look at Christ. She literally carried the Son of God in her womb and have more intimate and close time with Jesus than anyone else who's ever lived. This is a form of favor. So not only has she received this unmerited favor, you get something that no one else will ever get. But it also says this powerful declaration, and God is with you. You are not alone. You have favor, and you are not alone. You have the presence of God that is worthy of rejoicing. If we just step back and look at all that we value in life and in the world, if we have favor from God and the presence of God, it's all we need. And this is what she's being told she has, which is why the angel says, hey, rejoice. I have really, really, really good news for you. Verse 29 says she receives the greeting and yet she becomes greatly troubled. This troubled isn't that she's terrified or scared, she's not screaming in hysteria. The wheels in her mind begin to spin. Um, why is an angel talking to me? What is happening? What is he trying to tell me? What's going to happen? How is this going to, to work? She's trying to, to, to discern, okay, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? How do I walk this out? Why, why are you talking to, to me? And the angel says, hey, don't be afraid or bothered. I'll kind of explain the details to you. You have found favor with God. You, young girl, have been given great favor. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call him Jesus. He'll be called great, 
and it will be called the Son of the Most High. This is an Old Testament name often attributed to God. He will be called the literal Son of the Father, Son of God. And the Lord will, will give to him a throne of his father David. That's the lineage that he will come out of. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and all time. And his kingdom will be one that there will be no end. We've seen, if you know anything about history, we see kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and men get power and men die. He's going to say, no, you don't understand. The Son of God will be born to you from your room and he will come and his kingdom will never end. It will, there will need, never be another one that will raise over the top of it. If we heard that, we have to agree that's probably a lot to take in. You virgin will conceive and have a boy named Jesus, which again, remember we talked about last week, their names had meanings. You have a boy named Jesus, which means God saves or the Lord is salvation. This is the first hint that Jesus would be the, the, the savior that, that is dropped before her. He is all the way back in, in Genesis. We have the, the proto-evangelium, this idea that, yes, sin has broken other things, but a snake crusher will come and crush the head of the snake and break all that has been broken because of sin. That all the way through the Old Testament, all of that was pointing to Jesus. And she gets this, aha, this son of mine is that one that they were talking about. He is the, the savior who will save and redeem those who are lost. His name even testified to his work. Jesus is the salvation of God, the only door, the only path, the only bread, the only way who has come to seek and save all who are lost in their sin. When the angel said this Jesus will be great, that is a pointed statement. John was going to be great to the Lord. That's a kind of greatness. Jesus is just no qualification great. John the Baptist was going to be the prophet doing some kind of weird stuff and calling out in the wilderness. Jesus was going to reign on the throne of David for all of eternity. John would prepare the people for someone great. Jesus would be the someone great, the son of the most high, the son of God. John would make the people ready for the new king. Jesus would be the new king whose kingdom would never die and never end. This is the lesser to greater argument. In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 7, we hear what is called the Davidic covenant. And Gabriel tells her, the boy that you're going to have is going to be the substance and the mediator of that covenant. In an instance, she hears, you'll have a boy, and his name will be God saves, because God is going to save what is lost and broken through him. He's going to be great, the better David who reigns for all of time. Again, we could probably understand why that would be a lot for her to take in. Now, if we look at the, remember the text last week, Zechariah hears from God through this same angel, Gabriel, and he immediately follows up the declaration with the angel or from the angel with doubt and unbelief. Hey, you're going to have a baby. He's going to do great stuff and he's going to prepare the people for the Lord. And his response is, hey, how am I supposed to believe you? How am I supposed to trust that you're for real? How am I supposed to trust that that's going to happen? I mean, I'm old, my wife's old. I just don't know if, if I can place my belief in that. I don't know if I can trust you. His response to God is unbelief, doubt and unbelief. Mind you, he's already seen the hand of God and an angel in front of him in the middle of the hand of God, the angel in front of him in the presence of God, he's like, yeah, yeah I just don't know if I trust you sees the evidence of God's power, and yet he doubts in unbelief. Mary, on the other hand, she doesn't respond with unbelief, but she does have some questions. Where Zachariah said, how am I supposed to trust you? How am I supposed to put my belief in this? Mary says, okay, 
It's a lot to take in. How exactly is that going to work, though? Like, can, can you help me with the, the details? How am I going to have a baby because I am a virgin and I may be illiterate, but I know how babies are born? How is this going to work? This moment is one that we maybe need to wrestle with and digest in our personal life. God isn't opposed to your questions. Questions aren't even unbelief all the time. See, this may be one of the maybe helpful things for for your heart because some of you maybe have been taught that like, hey, you just need to house your questions and not bring questions and and kind of things before the Lord, kind of keep that quiet. Don't don't ever do that. Just, Just stop. Questions aren't all doubting and all bad though. Mary has questions and they're welcomed by the angel Gabriel. Zachariah has unbelief. Hey buddy, you get to not talk for nine months. Mary has questions. Unbelief is a problem, questions are fine. And we can put this little caveat on it because we're, we're sneaky people. Questions are okay as long as your questions aren't veiled unbelief. You can ask questions, but there's a way to ask a question where you're actually making an accusation against God. Hey, probably don't do that type of question. But it's okay to go, man, I don't know how this is gonna work and I just don't, I don't understand it. He's a big father and you're able to bring those type of questions before him without being crushed. Gabriel says, hey, let me tell you how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, this is the power of God the Father, will overshadow you, and the Holy Spirit will come near and overshadow you, and that's how it's going to happen. There are people who've done some really weird stuff with this text. There's no graphic, weird thing happening here at all. This is similar language to God's presence in the sanctuary in the Old Testament. The presence of God, the same way it comes near in the, in the sanctuary or the temple, in the Holy Spirit, the same language in the Old Testament where, where in creation the Spirit hovers above the waters is the same language. The, the way that the Holy Spirit was there in creation with power and the way that God fills the temple with his presence and power, that's going to be how it happens. And through that, you're going to conceive and Jesus will come. Since you have a son this way, he will be called holy, set apart, special, the son of God. Notice the wording in the text, though, and what Luke strains to make sure that we see. The Holy Spirit is there. The Most High God is there. And it leads to the conception of Jesus. The, the full trinity is here. And Luke will also show that in the baptism and the transfiguration of Christ. He wants you to see the, 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 the persons of God involved intimately in the story of redemption. They're all there in conception. And the angel says, oh yeah, and your auntie Elizabeth, the old one, she's pregnant. She's in her sixth month of pregnancy, though everyone thought it was impossible, and she was barren. There's nothing impossible with God, nothing. And I find this just to be a, a huge kindness. Fast forward, Mary gets these words and she hears them and she's trying to like maybe walk away later. Like, Man, I'm trying to have faith, but that's a lot to believe in. And then all of a sudden she runs into her aunt. We'll see this later. Like, you are pregnant? It's, it's, it's just another way for the Lord to go, hey, I, I want to help you believe. I want, I want to help you know I am with you. Now is when we should process a little of how Mary would have likely been thinking and feeling. She's betrothed, engaged to be married to Joseph, right? She's a spoken for woman. 
Nazareth was a small place and she had uh, likely known Joseph for most all of her life. Maybe their family was friends. I, I don't know, but she's known him for a long time and she needs to figure out how I'm going to walk to this man who I'm engaged to and look him in the eyes and say, I'm pregnant, but I did not cheat on you. It's a lot. She has to look him in the eyes and say, I, I, I swear I'm still a virgin. I am faithful. I promise I have never cheated. An angel came and told me this would happen. Do you believe me? It's a lot. And if that wasn't enough, she also had to face a community around her. If a small town girl walked up to you and said, yep, got a bun in the oven, but I didn't do the deed, that's a lot. That's a lot to take on. How are you supposed to believe someone is pregnant without ever having intercourse? How do you think that's going to go over for her? Sure. Sure. Okay. All right. What she has in her future is some pretty incredible pain coming her way. Can you imagine the awful names and the scowls and the cruelty and the difficulty of what she would go through? Because obviously she would not be believed by many, many, many people around her. She will be treated with contempt and if she is guilty of a crime that she actually didn't commit. And those words are specific for a reason. In that day, to be betrothed and to cheat is a crime punishable by death. This is, this is a rock-solid contract in their time. If you would cheat on someone when engaged, you can be killed for it. So God had favored her. But what this young girl knows quickly is the culture is going to try and destroy her disdain and mockery and slander and gossip are all in the cards for her. Oh, and death is by no means off the table because of this. It's a lot. And she says to the angel, what Clayton was trying to lay before our hearts even before now, beautiful words, behold, I'm a servant of God. Let it be according to your will. This is amazing. She could have said, cool, hard pass, choose someone else, please. Uh, this is too much for me to deal with. Please, 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 please do not do this to me. Like, I think that's probably my angle. Like, is there another way? Please. Like, my cousin, she's kind of mean. Like, you want to choose her? Or maybe, maybe it would be this. Okay. Can we, like, postpone a little bit? Like, I'm going to be married not too long. Can we, like... Maybe three months and then kick it another nine months and then we can just kind of pretend it's Joseph's baby. Like, can we do that? That would make it a lot easier on me. I could pretend he's the baby daddy, nobody be mad. She does none of that. No, let me think about it. No, I don't know. No, why would you do this to me? She says some of the boldest and strongest words that you will find. This young Young girl, and wrap your mind around this. She cannot read. She's not read the word and had all this quiet time reading about the, the, the word of God and the father. She's just retained what she's heard in the temple and what her family has told her about. And yet her reaction with this life-changing news that is gonna walk her into a horrific gauntlet of pain. Yes, there's the beauty of being able to snuggle Jesus, but when you walk outside, there's a horrific gauntlet of pain coming her way. And all she says is, I see it, and I'm a servant of God, let, let his will be done. 
I trust God and I serve him. If that's your will for my life, even though it's tough, okay. And it's not just a plan for me, it's a plan for the people of God. Who am I to say anything else beyond yes? So she just kind of says, let it be. Let it roll. Let's, let's go. I, I trust him. This is, this is going to hurt. Let's go. See, this is a boldness of bravery and trust that is beautiful to, be, to behold. This is also why we said that Mary's faith should be an example to us. It's worthy of imitation. She knows very clearly that the will of God is going to walk her into some moments of immense pain. And yet she still understands that the will of God is the best place for her to be. What we see here is what I call the opposite of the garden, the undoing of the moment before the tree. See, this is Adam and Eve before the tree in the garden. They said, you know, I don't, I don't know if God is really good. I don't know if I should trust him. I don't know if he has my best interest at heart. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I could do this better on my, my own. I want to maybe treat God as my servant and me be the one who elevates my plan. No, I'm not going to trust him. I'm going to do it my way. But Mary says, no, no, no. I know who I am. I know, I, I know my, my, my place and my trust, my father. I am God's servant. I trust him. Let's go with his plan. This isn't just a, a strong little girl's faith. It's a strong faith that I hope I have. A faith that some would consider absolutely reckless. You're going to trust God even though you know it's going to walk you into that? Yes. I trust him with anything and everything to come. Wherever you lead, I'll follow. Take me and please just don't walk away while I'm there because it's going to be hard. This brings to mind a quote from a man named Brother Lawrence that I was reading some stuff from this week. And he, he said this in especially maybe distracted or troubling or maybe just heavy times. He's having difficulty getting his heart to go to the Lord. He said this line, Lord, make me according to thy heart. Having problems focusing or seeing or trusting or believing you. Lord, make me according to your heart. This is a prayer and a declaration to his heart and his mind to remember that the best thing that could happen to his life is the will of God. It's the heart that knows and understands that God's will and God's plan is the absolute best plan and best option for my life. The best life doesn't come through, through money or fame or experiences. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes? It doesn't come through desire or knowledge or accolades or anything else. It comes through the Lord's will in my life and in my heart. Lord, make me according to your will. Whatever you want, mold me. Man, it's hard to trust you, but take me down your path. Let me go down your plan. Your plan is better, even though sometimes I'm scared and I don't know what to do, and sometimes that doesn't look fun. Lord, lead me. As we step back, we see another piece of the story unfold before us. God had a plan. The Most High God would send his son, Jesus, fittingly named God Saves, to come and save those who are needing of salvation. God pulls apart the the veil, the fabric that separates heaven and earth for Jesus to come through the womb of a young, brave girl named Mary so that he would be able to seek and save those who are lost. 
Each detail in this text and in this book is another piece of the puzzle that we get to put in place and and see the full picture of God's love and Jesus' accomplishment for us. So we have confidence and boldly, but not begrudgingly follow Jesus. I pray that our hearts begin to be kind of overwhelmed with the length that God has gone in order to, to save his children who are lost. We'll wind down for our time today, but questions maybe worthy of processing this morning might be this. Same as we let in, do you consider yourself one who desperately need or needed salvation? Do you see yourself as a spiritual beggar who couldn't make your way home on your own? Who needed one to accomplish redemption for you? It is only when we see this clearly that we worship fully God. And seeing the beauty of God fully meeting the need that we have, those who could not be forgiven see that God has sent his son to make a way for forgiveness There's an epic chasm between us and God and Jesus came and bridged the gap fully through what he did on the cross. It is when we wrestle with this clearly that we find joy and deep worship. Is that you? Not to beat yourself up, but man, do you you see that you had a great need, that you had a good dad that made a plan in order to save you and a strong king of a savior came to walk it out even though it was difficult? The other question Again, you'll see these themes continue to wind through the book. Do you trust God, just like last week? Like Mary, do you believe that God's plan for you is the best plan? Have you learned to pray like Jesus? Remember when when he's teaching us how to pray, at the very front side, he puts this, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. What is that saying? It, It I'm your servant, your will, your plan. Have you learned to say that and mean that? Not just, Lord, your will in my city, as in like out there, or my, your will in my church, and like not just me, but Lord, your will in my life and in my family and in my vocation and over my dreams, Lord, your will be done. Because the Holy Spirit is likely beckoning us today through the the, the faith of Mary that we kind of see in the the text to walk into a deeper trust of God, even when trusting God sometimes brings us into trials. Do you trust him? If you see today that maybe you've had questions that have crept up into a form of unbelief where trusting God maybe feels dangerous or impossible or begrudging, And there's just a simple play to do business with the Lord at the back end of the service today and just pray and ask for help. Lord, will you help me? Holy Spirit, comforter, will you come give me a a fresh uh, strength and a a fresh perspective to have a deeper trust in God? We wanna be those who say, Lord, I'll go wherever you want. I'll do whatever you say because your plan is perfect. I am your servant, so speak to me your will and meet me with the confidence and the boldness and the trust to walk through what you tell me to do. Meet me with faith and walk with me. Some things may feel like they go sideways, but I trust you. As we close, there will be a danger in these texts to insert yourself into the reading. And I'm going to try and be careful with that in Luke with a lot of different narratives. Right? The, the danger of inserting yourself in a text, this is like reading David and Goliath and thinking you're David, you're not David. 
So we need to be careful like where we kind of place ourselves in text to, to not maybe overreach or, or think it's about us or our prosperity or something else like that. But there is a nugget in this text that was said to Mary that though the story isn't about you, the words are. The angel said, you have found favor with God and you have the presence of God. And those words to her back then are as much to you now as they were to her. Because of what Jesus did, if the Holy Spirit has given you the faith to believe in him, you've been given grace, unmerited favor. You were dead in your sin. You had no way out. You couldn't fix any of it. And favor was given to you because a king was sent. The Holy Spirit gave you the faith to believe. And now you're adopted into the family of God. That is massive favor with God. Yes, she got to hold baby Jesus, but he saves you if your faith is in him. And not only do you have that favor that he has come to seek and save the lost and you are one of them, but you also understand that the presence of God through the Holy Spirit is with you even along the way. This is a beautiful gift. Christ dwells in your heart through the Holy Spirit, meaning he's making a home for God inside of you, preparing you more and more and more for the Father. You have the favor of God and you have the presence of God child of God. This is worthy of worship. So the same words from Gabriel, hey, rejoice, you found favor and you found presence is the same words we hear today. And would you see the beauty of what has been done for you? Would you praise the Lord that his presence is near? And if you have not given yourself to that, if you have not been saved, if you've not asked the Father to save you through Jesus, said, Jesus, I need a savior. Hey, I just, I just kind of keep pr- pressing you. What are you waiting for? Come, taste and see that he is good. Band, you guys will, can come back up. We'll take communion again today like we do each week. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We need to see in light of this story, even the moments where where Gabriel's telling Mary that you're going to have a boy, the boy was always going to be born and walk towards the cross where his body would be broken and his blood would be shared to redeem a people. So we gather around that truth and we get to come to the table in the middle of worship and take the bread and dip it into the cup. Remember, your body was broken for me. And I don't have to save myself. I don't have to fix myself. I am in desperate need of saving. And the good news is daddy sent a savior for me and I get to take. So each time that you take, you're remembering the work has been finished. Lord, let me believe in that more and more and more. And let me trust in you and be built up by the reality of what Jesus has done. Come Come speak to me the beauty. Let me take it in again and understand that you have done all that I need. So the hope is that you'd be able to come to the table and take at some point in worship and that your heart would be built up with Christ. You don't have to be a member to come and take. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus to come. We'll spend some time wrestling with the questions. Do you see the need that you have? Do you see the will of God as the best plan for your life? Do you need to even ask for, for more faith for current circumstance that you're in? Would you worship Jesus in light of what he's done for you? Would you stand and pray with me before we move back into the backside of worship?